All right, before I start the show, I want to tell you about our sponsor, MetPro. Last spring, you might remember that I did an episode with MetPro's founder, Angelo Poli, about how his company has helped thousands of people understand their bodies better through metabolism tracking. Well, MetPro just launched a brand new tool that lets you see the same science and tailored strategy that their experts use. So you can start tracking, analyzing, and learning what your metabolism responds to best. Now, my listeners get up to one month for free when you sign up, so head to metpro.co slash getfitguy to learn more. Welcome to the Get Fit Guy's quick and dirty tips to slim down and shape up. My name is Brock Armstrong, and I'm the Get Fit Guy. If you've ever been on a tropical vacation and spotted someone wearing a three-piece suit while looking cool as a cucumber while you sweat away in your shorts and your flip-flops, you've probably actually wondered about a thing called heat adaptation without even knowing it. In my recent podcast, Is It Ever Too Cold to Exercise Outdoors?, I mentioned some physiological adaptations that were possible to get by training in hot conditions, and this idea seems to have piqued some of your curiosity. I received a number of questions asking exactly what heat adaptation means, what the benefits are, and how to go about getting them. And I'll get to that in a moment, but first, I want to tell you a story. A few years ago, I ran a marathon in Chicago in hopes of qualifying for the Boston Marathon. I had trained hard, and I was prepared to give it my all, and I was on pace to achieve my goal time, but the sun was getting high in the sky, and the temperature was rising, and so was my heart rate. I was only nearing the halfway mark, so there was no way I was going to drop my pace, so I dug deep and I pressed on. But then I started to get worried as runner after runner in front of me dropped their pace and started dumping more and more water over their heads at every single aid station. Finally, when a very formidable runner that I'd been running near for about 20 kilometers suddenly careened wildly across the road and then proceeded to face plant on the cement right in front of me, well, I decided it was probably time to reconsider how hard I was willing to push for this Boston qualifier. I finished the race, and after a lengthy lounge under a shady tree in the park, I got myself back to the hotel and I took a cold shower. And then I actually found out that between the time that I arrived at the starting area and the time that I crossed that halfway point, the temperature had gone from 59 degrees Fahrenheit, or 15 degrees Celsius, to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, or 27 degrees Celsius. Now later that night, I was sipping a beer, exhausted but no worse for wear, and I couldn't help but wonder how that obviously well-trained runner had pushed herself to the point of face planting. When you exercise in the heat, your body circulates blood away from the core and closer to the skin where it can be cooled more effectively by maximizing the thermogenic effects of evaporation. But by shunting blood to your skin, that draws oxygen away from your working muscles, while also lowering the amount of blood that your heart can pump with each beat. And because you're losing fluid, you're also losing blood volume, and this places additional demand on your already hard-working heart. This gets even worse if it's humid outside. In a high-humidity situation, sweat won't actually evaporate from your skin, and that in turn pushes your body temperature even higher. Now normally, your skin, your blood vessels, and sweat levels adjust to the heat, but these automatic cooling systems will eventually fail if you exercise in high temperatures and high humidity for too long. 
Now, as blood, and fluid in general, becomes a precious commodity in your body, and your heart is forced to work harder and faster, and your heart rate gets higher and higher, and your breathing becomes faster, your blood pressure drops and your core temperature rises. And if you keep going past this point, eventually your body will send a message to your brain to stop this madness. And that's when exercise goes from fun to uncomfortable or difficult to straight up impossible. And that is clearly what happened to that poor face-planting marathoner. Now, according to the Mayo Clinic, heat illnesses include things like heat cramps, heat syncope, exercise-associated collapse, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. And I'll go through each one of those. Now, heat cramps are sometimes called exercise-associated muscle cramps, and those can be painful muscle contractions that occur with exercise. Now, the next thing is heat syncope, which is a feeling of lightheadedness that occurs after standing for a long period or standing quickly after sitting for a long time. Now, the next one is exercise-associated collapse. Now, this is a feeling of lightheadedness or fainting immediately after exercising, and this can occur especially if you immediately stop running and stand after a long race or a long run. Now, the next one is heat exhaustion, and that's when your body temperature rises as high as 104 degrees Fahrenheit, or 40 degrees Celsius. Now, with that, you may experience nausea, vomiting, weakness, headache, fainting, sweating, and cold and clammy skin. And finally, heat stroke, which is a life-threatening emergency condition that occurs when your body temperature is higher than 104 degrees Fahrenheit, or 40 degrees Celsius. Now, at this point, your skin may actually start to feel dry from lack of being able to sweat. Now, incidentally, later that night in Chicago, my friend and I were endlessly amused by the uncontrollable twitching and pulsing that my calf muscles were doing. Now, this is a thing called fasciculations. My calves fully cramped very painfully a few times, and the constant twitching actually kept me up much of the night. And honestly, I kind of started to freak out a little. It looked like there was a swarm of calf snakes that trying to burst through my skin. And this was likely due to dehydration and a slight electrolyte deficiency. But looking back now, had I known that this cold weather Canadian was going to be racing in what I would consider to be hot weather, even for vacation Brock, I would have absolutely added some heat adaptation protocols to my training program. In fact, I did exactly that two years later when I was training for an Ironman triathlon that I was doing in Thailand in December. Before I go on, I want to tell you about our sponsor, MetPro. Last spring, I did an episode with MetPro's founder, Angelo Poli, all about metabolism. And his company, MetPro, continues to help thousands of people transform their bodies by hacking their metabolism through concierge coaching. Now, I spent a couple of months actually using MetPro a while ago, and it was a really cool experience, I have to say. MetPro is doing some really interesting and innovative work to help you better understand your body so you can get the results you want. And MetPro actually just launched a brand new tool that lets you see the same science and the tailored strategy that their experts are using. And you know what? It's not a food logging tool or a workout app for that matter. The MetPro app actually allows you to start tracking, analyzing, and learning what your metabolism responds to using science. And my listeners get up to one month for free when you sign up if you head to metpro.co slash getfitguy to take advantage of this opportunity. That's metpro.co slash getfitguy. 
FitGuy for up to one month for free. Now back to the science of heat adaptation. Even the Mayo Clinic says that if you're used to exercising indoors or in cooler weather, it can take one to two weeks to actually adapt to the heat. Now, in a 2010 research study called A Heat Acclimation Protocol for Team Sports, they saw a noticeable difference in just 10 days. After only four 30 to 45 minute sessions of intermittent exercise in 30 degrees Celsius with a 27% relative humidity, the 17 well-trained female athletes showed lower core temperature and an accompanying rise in thermal comfort, which resulted in an increase in their overall exercise capacity. Now, in a more recent study on the physiological responses to overdressing in 13 well-trained runners, they saw similar advantages from simply wearing an uncomfortable number of layers while training. Now, in this study, they tested the heart rate, core temperature, mean skin temperature, sweat rate, and extracellular heat shock protein in 13 well-trained runners, and there were seven male and six female runners. They had the runners run on treadmills for about 60 minutes and then compared physiological and cellular responses to exercise in 40 degrees Celsius with minimal clothing and in 15 degrees Celsius while wearing five bulky layers that included a wool hat, wool mittens, a rain jacket, and plastic pants. Now, the overdressed runners, well, they didn't entirely overheat the way they did in the actual hot conditions, but it still triggered some of the desired adaptations. Ten of the runners reached that core temperature of 38.5 degrees, which is the magic temperature where heat adaptation begins. Now, another cool study, pun intended, compared heat acclimation to a pre-cooling protocol, which involved applying icy towels to nine amateur 5K runners on their head, their neck, and dunking their hands and their forearms into nine degrees Celsius water, strapping ice packs to their chest and their back and their upper legs for about 20 minutes. Now, this pre-cooling protocol gave the runners a 3.7% improvement in their performance, but only five days of 90-minute training sessions that kept their core temperature above 38.5 degrees led to a 6.6% improvement in performance. And interestingly, doing both the heat adaptation and the pre-cooling led to a 7% improvement. Now, in another study that focused on the effects of heat on the gut more than on the muscles, they found that gradual exposure to repetitive exercise and non-exercise heat stress can improve heat transfer from the core to the skin. It can also create more efficient cardiovascular function, decrease heart rate during hot exercise, decrease skin and body temperature during hot exercise, increase blood volume, and decrease electrolyte loss, and that's via kidney filtration. Okay, I know I'm getting a little carried away, but one last study before we jump into the tips. Researchers from the University of Otago in New Zealand enlisted elite rowers to row for five days for 90 minutes per day. Now, the catch was that they were rowing in a room that was heated to 104 degrees Fahrenheit with 60% humidity. And they didn't even have to row hard, just hard enough to overheat them slightly. Now, in the end, there was a 1.5% increase in their 2,000 meter rowing performance. 
Now, that may not sound like much, but keep in mind that these were professional rowers, not just your man on the street. So a 1.5% increase is impressive. The researchers figured there were many reasons for this increase, but most notably they highlighted the 4.5% higher blood volume and the enhanced ability to mentally handle slight dehydration. Okay, how do you actually adapt to the heat? Well, there are two ways to do this, passively and actively. Let's start with passive heat adaptation. Now this one simply involves hanging out in a dry heat sauna or a steam room. Easy, right? Now, although it induces the same cardiovascular and sweat changes as active heat training, which I'll get to in a minute, it doesn't require as much recovery or the embarrassment of dragging a stationary bike or a kettlebell into the sauna. Now, both a sauna and a steam room have both been shown to achieve solid results. So just choose your favorite and go with whichever one you have the easiest access to. Begin with 10 to 15 minutes of passive heat training and gradually build up to a 45-minute session every two or three days. Adaptations can occur in as few as 10 days, but if you're using passive heat training for a preparation for a race like I did for Thailand, then start at least four weeks, but as many as eight weeks before your big day. Now let's talk about active heat adaptation. Now you probably guessed that this one actually involves exercising in the heat, and this can be done easily at home in a small room with a heater and a humidifier under your bike or next to your treadmill. Now, if you have access and you won't get your gym membership revoked, <laughs> doing a workout in an actual sauna or a steam room is even better. You can do either steady exercise like jogging on a treadmill or interval training like a Tabata set on a bike. But remember, this is hard on you, especially at first. So if you begin to get too hot or you begin to struggle to continue to exercise comfortably, you will still get the benefits and the adaptations if you stop exercising or if you turn off the heat. Just allow your heart rate to slow and your body to cool a little bit, and then, if you're up for it, slowly get back into your workout. There's actually a cool name for this hot method of starting and stopping, and it is controlled hyperthermia. If you're actually going to be competing in the heat, then active heat training is definitely the way to go. You truly need to experience the physiological and psychological responses to hot weather racing to be more than just good at sweating on the day. You will need to have hot weather grit. Active training is certainly more uncomfortable, but it will yield faster results than the passive heat adaptation. You will only need to do 45 to 60 minutes of moderate intensity exercise in the heat for 7 to 10 consecutive days, or 4 to 5 times a week for 2 or 3 weeks to see some good results. Now here are some quick and dirty ways to make acclimating a little more fun. You can entertain yourself or learn while you're sweating by bringing a book that you don't mind getting wet or sweaty, or an mp3 player into the sauna while you're doing your passive heat acclimation. Or you can do some low to mid-intensity workouts in the sauna or the steam room. For example, you can bring a resistance band into the sauna and do some side raises or some bicep curls or front raises, leg raises, planks, or any other exercise that you can do without accidentally punching the wall or another sauna goer. 
Or, as I mentioned before, if you're exercising on a treadmill or a bike trainer, keep the temperature turned up in the room and the doors and the windows closed. And if that's still not hot enough, then bring a space heater or a humidifier into the room. And finally, like that study from the beginning of this podcast, you can just put on some extra layers. One word of caution. You will start to lose the positive adaptations of heat training in about seven days, so plan accordingly. If you're doing this training for a specific event or a race, I would suggest continuing the heat adaptation up to four days before your event. Before we wrap up, I want you to know that no matter how acclimated you are, you will never be completely immune to the dangers of exercising in the heat. So, if you are planning to compete seriously in a hot climate, you still need to do things like drink plenty of fluids, dress appropriately, avoid that midday sun, wear sunscreen, wear clothing that breathes, dump water on your head and your face and your hands, and above all else, keep your wits about you. The very last thing you want to do is to have your big race PR attempt cut short because of a face plant that leaves your skin and your pride on the hot Chicago asphalt on an unseasonably hot October morning. You can also find me on twitter.com slash getfitguy or you can send me messages right here at getfitguy.quickanddirtytips.com or you can email me at getfitguy at quickanddirtytips.com. I'm always happy to hear from all of you. Now, my name is Brock Armstrong, and I'm the Get Fit Guy, asking you, what are you waiting for? Go get fit.